0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details.
1: Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another Word in your ear. And we are here to dwell upon one of the saddest stories in popular music, which is the thing that, frankly, Mark and I have talked about from time to time over the years, thinking, what a sad tale that is. And, but we never thought that anybody would actually get round to writing a book about it. And I'm delighted right. to say they have. And I'm delighted to say that somebody we've had, as a previous guest on the pod, a friend of the pod, Joel Selvin from San Francisco, from the Bay Area. And the book I'm talking about is Drums and Demons, The Tragic Journey of Jim Gordon, whose uh, drumming you will no doubt be familiar with, uh, probably most prominently with uh, Eric Clapson, Derek and the Dominoes. But if you search the sleeve notes of millions of records you've got, some of the most distinguished ones, you'll find his name there. on Ricky Don't Lose That Number by uh, Steely Dan. And, which uh, is Alignment. Good vibrations. Absolutely. Classical gas. And as I discovered only this morning, uh, to my delight, New Coat of Paint by Tom Waits from uh, The Heart of Saturday Night. (laughs) And uh, so, Joel, welcome. What made you, apart from the fact that it is the saddest story in popular music, what made you want to write this book?
2: Oh, I've had this story in my mind uh, for many, 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 many years. Uh as you say, I mean, it's just an incredibly sad story. And so little of it was known. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, Jim killed his mother and and uh, suddenly he was uh, uh, gone. And, and <clears throat> there's no backstory to that at all. It just like happened in a vacuum. Uh, I had met some people 30 years ago who uh, had uh, Jim's cooperation on a book project. And they couldn't finish the book. Uh, they were kind of pro-ams that were looking to write a book for the first time. And, and, but they had tons of jailhouse interviews with Jim. They had his medical records. They had, they had everything. And, and they, they, they didn't know what they had. Like I asked this gal about the, the, the diaries, and she says, oh, they were useless. They just had his studio dates. Oh, only in okay. studio dates. <laughs> okay. Uh, but um, I had tried to acquire their research at that time. They uh, were splitting up and moving out of the state, and one of them was fine with the idea, and the other one just couldn't let go of it. And like 30 years later, I'm talking to a book editor who says, you know, Joel, you know, what you got to do is you got to find something that that combines rock and roll and true crime. I want Jim Gordon circled back with these people and acquired the research. So I'm sitting on a pile of uh, 1988 interviews with Jim and a variety of his associates. It was like a, a, a hard nut in the center of my research. I did a you know another hundred hundred and fifty interviews myself, and there was plenty of detailed research beyond that. But with that kind of a you know a, a leg up, uh, I, I, I was I was excited to do this, and and <clears throat> with that, it only took me three and a half years. <laughs> right,
0: <laughs> I know how it is.
2: <laughs> when were you first aware of him,
3: though? Because he wasn't obviously he was, a, he was a session musician. When you were a teenager, Madoff was an Englishman.
2: Oh right, was that the first uh, okay. time? through
0: through the film, presumably?
2: Yeah. Actually actually, you know, I think I, I I probably was aware of him in Delaney and Bonnie.
0: Right. Yeah. But he, he came from where, I, he, he came from where? Just tell us how he got to be a well known drummer. Well,
2: Jim uh, grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, and uh, discovered drums very early and became something of an astonishing kind of prodigy who was took all the training and all the education and was schooled by UCLA percussion teachers. And the day after he graduated from high school, he went on the road with the Everly Brothers. He was 17 years old. That's kind of starting at the top in 1963. Yes. In September, he was in England uh, the Everly Brothers were headlining a tour that uh, also included Bo Diddley, Little Richard, and on their first nationwide tour of England, the Rolling Stones. So, I mean, he was right there at the beginning. Back in Los Angeles, he gravitated into session work, and, and there couldn't have been a better time to hit session work in Los Angeles, 1964-65, The whole scene in Los Angeles exploded behind the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and Herb Alpert and Nancy Sinatra and Sonny and Cher, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And he real quickly became the second guy. If you couldn't get Earl Palmer or Hal Blaine, you got Jim. Uh, So what was it that made him so
3: special? What 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 made him special?
2: he had some kind of ability that was just far beyond anybody else's intuitive uh, levels and my suspicion is that the electrochemical setup in his brain that would eventually create this schizophrenia gifted him with some kind of extraordinary intuition as far as this i mean i've had drummers explain to me oh the jim gordon sound yeah you retard the second beat and then it gives a (laughs) roll to the whole measure but that's not it you you can't do that you know by notation you can't read that music you have to feel it so everything jim plays on he brings some kind of luminous touch to that no other drummer would think of or be able i'll tell you jim Keltner told me that when he first met jim He's had to learn how to play like Jim in order to not play like Jim. So that's how <laughs> persuasive his style is to other percussionists.
3: There are a couple of things that you mentioned that, that I thought were extraordinary. One was that <clears throat> the pattern left on his snare drum by his sticks was no bigger than a, a quarter, I think. And the other was <laughs> that when recording with Tom Petty, he did an entire track, and then they said, "We said, why don't we double up the drums? And he had to play the entire part as an exact replica
2: of what he'd done before and did it in one take. I mean, that's supernatural. Mike Campbell remembers that like a car crash he was in. It it was like it happened last week. It it, it was a miracle before his eyes. It's just like, oh, my God. Uh, And Ben Tench was there, too, the keyboard player in the Heartbreakers. He wasn't on the session, but he was hanging out. And again, he was just like, you just couldn't believe it was happening when you saw it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he had a supernatural ability on the drums. There was nobody like it. And when you think about like the range of uh, records that you were talking yeah. about, I mean, he's got the samba groove on Midnight mm. at the Oasis. He's got the the boogaloo on Grazing in the Grass. The underpinnings of Layla are just phenomenal. I mean, those guitars so dominate that track. But you can go on the internet and, and find an isolated drum track, and it's just amazing the subtleties that are wound into that.
0: And I suppose with a a session drummer particularly, he has to have the extraordinary ability to hear a song and immediately know what to do. Yeah, as a matter of fact, one
2: of the producers I talked to said that Jim was the only drummer he knew of that would play the first take. You know, everybody else listens and maybe hits the kick drum on the four. But Jim just jumped in and would play things, you know. He had this incredible, like I keep saying, intuition. Uh, And session drummers, you know, they have to play every kind of music. And what everybody found about Jim was that he was not a backbeat timekeeper. He was somebody who played the drums compositionally, and he moved his
0: drum parts into the musical framework of the record. And you can hear that on all kinds of his work. You can. That's what I was thinking this morning when I was listening to New Coat of Paint. You know, it's like you say, he was the most musical of those drummers. And he's, he's entirely musical, his contribution to that thing. You hear things that you would never realize were the drummer. And they are, they're all all his creations. You tell the story in the book, just jumping ahead, you know, he 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 was in London quite a lot of the time in the in the late sixties, early seventies, and he ended up at Trident Studios when they were making "You're So Vain" with Carly Simon, and they tried this with a number of drummers, hadn't they? And and none of them they, worked out. Go on. Yeah, they'd uh, tried it with Carly's
2: drummer Andy Newmark, and they tried it with uh, some British session player, all in the same week, and Jim just happened to be passing through London. Uh, with the Frank Zappa tour uh, and and producer Richard Perry said, get down to the studio right now. Carly threw a fit. Well, I thought we've already done this. What's the deal? And Andy Newmark uh, was there uh, and, and he asked Jim, could he watch the uh, recording session from the drum booth? Jim said, sure. So he pulled up a stool and sat there for five hours. while Jim did 60, 70 takes. That's Richard Perry's sort of style. And uh, uh, Andy said, never made a mistake. Ne- never just completely went forward, forward, forward. And when they were done, there was a six-inch crater on the yeah. snare drum. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's extraordinary. So just going back, so he he, he works as a session man in, in, in Los Angeles, but then he ends up with, did he end up with Delaney and Bonnie's band? That's where he uh, sort of starts out of the, uh, getting out of the session work, although he'd done some dates with Chad and Jeremy
2: at, uh, uh, after even the Everly Brothers. But really, he was, uh, his, his whole focus was studios, three sessions a day, six days a week. Uh, and then, you know, the Delaney and Bonnie thing was kind of hot. It wasn't a big selling record or anything, no. but it was attracting a lot of attention. And they were the gigs were around Los Angeles and it was kind of getting glittery, you know, like Dave Mason sitting in one night, Steve Stills the next. And I, I think Jim was, you know, he was hungry for that kind of action. He was tired of being in the rooms with no windows. And it was 1969, man. You know, rock was the the huge thing in the culture at that point. And uh, Delaney and Bonnie's band uh, crossed paths with the Rolling Stones in October in Los Angeles, and uh, they tried Bonnie out on "Gimme Shelter," and they put Bobby Keys on the record, and they remembered uh, Jim from uh, in England from the Everly Brothers. The, the Everly Brothers, that's a yeah. man. Yeah,
3: it's uh, interesting that 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 you kind of see both those worlds—the the the, the the studio-based pop. Factory of the sixties, uh, built around singles and the kind of big rock tours promoting albums in the seventies through the window of Jim, don't you? Because he switches from one world as you were just saying to the other. Was, was there a reason? Did he was part of it wanting more of a profile? Because when he actually joined rock and roll bands, that and Mad Dogs and Englishmen and stuff, he, he really kind of changed personality slightly, didn't
2: he? Became, I think, I think bird. that he was. I think you're absolutely right. I think he was reaching for some of the, the perks of the position. I think he wanted some of the sunshine and the spotlight. Uh, he had achieved everything you could achieve as a studio musician. He made a fortune. Uh, he played on the biggest hit records in the business. Uh, and the excitement in 1969 about live rock, I mean, that was, Led Zeppelin was Blowing out uh, uh, concerts, two and a half hours with a you know yep. half hour with drum solo. Drum solos, and, and that's right. Cream yep, et cetera. and and the Who were uh, touring Tommy that year, and of course then the Stones came back, and, and I mean these, this was a gigantic arena, and and hit, hit records were like getting smaller by comparison, and the, uh, the FM radio was just about to break open. All this was like a, a, a pivot point. And yeah, Jim saw it and, and, and jumped on it and ended up in London uh, with uh, uh, Clapton forming Derek and the Dominoes and cutting the tracks to the George Harrison solo album, which was pretty much sort of the, the pinnacle of the rock scene at that moment.
0: Yeah. So tell us the story of his involvement with Layla. Well, uh what you're asking about is is the coda the the, the uh, well just generally uh, the, I mean no. go on tell the story
2: well you know the the songs about Clapton's love affair and all that uh, and uh, it was uh unnote noteworthy in rehearsals uh at, at, but when they got to Miami and Dwayne Allman showed up uh he, he changed the tempo of the song and uh uh, uh nicked a lick from a uh, Albert King record. And boom, it just was transformed into this amazing piece. But Clapton really was never satisfied with the ending. And they come back to the studio to finish up the album, you know, a little post-production and stuff like that. And he remembers a piano piece that uh, Jim and his then-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge, uh, had played for Clapton when uh, Clapton uh, was working with Delaney and Bonnie. And and Rita had written uh, lyrics to this uh, and uh, gave Clapton a tape of it. Uh, But now we're back in Miami and he wants to finish Layla. And he convinces Jim to drag out this piano uh, piece. And, And Jim cuts a version of it on piano. And then they bring Whitlock in, who doesn't dig it at all. He doesn't think it fits with the song. He doesn't think Jim's a writer. all of the above, but he cuts another version of it. And they make a composite and Tom Dowd sticks it on the end of Layla. And when they first put the single out, it doesn't have the the piano part. And then turkeys, It stiffs. A year later, they put it out all seven minutes with the piano part. And it's top 10 hit. (laughs) Furthermore, Jim Gordon is now 50%. uh, He's a co-writer. But so so there, Rita Coolidge, was, a just about <laughs> Rita
0: Coolidge? It was cut out of it totally.
2: <laughs> cut out of it totally. She's doing a photo shoot at AM Records for publicity photos, and somebody's got a radio on, and she hears this thing in the corner of her ear, and she goes, wait a minute. That's my song. And she was very upset when she talked to her record producer, David Anerley, and she talked to Jerry Moss, the head uh, of a and and nobody really wanted to go to bat with her. She didn't have a copyright. Mm. Uh, and she actually called up Clapton's manager, Robert Stigwood, and he just intimidated the hell out of her. Mm. Uh, well, didn't so Stigwood she say something like,
3: what chance have you got as a kind of solo girl singer or something,
2: didn't he? I mean, something just really shocking now. Yep, he was aggressive. And, you know, this had happened to her before. She and um, Bonnie
0: lady. had written uh, group, a groupie. Yes. yes.
2: Yeah, and it was a big a big hit record for Delaney and Bonnie, and it was on uh, a, uh, the the Dog English Tour, and then the Carpenters had a hit with it. But, yeah, the, the, uh, it, it was copyrighted by Leon Russell and Delaney Bramlett, yeah. and they had nothing to do with anything but the copyright.
0: Right.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So she'd seen that happen before. I mean, uh, uh, what I say in the book was that the, the music business was just a pirate ship and she was just a wench. Yeah.
0: but also the
3: way people behave is so astonishing the details you've got about clapton there's a bit where they're on a train him and jim gordon and they have an argument and he just gets up in the carriage and picks up jim gordon's case and throws it out of the window you know uh, and uh, routinely they they throw glasses against walls and smash up places that they're staying in with really nice and hospitable hosts who've let them stay there i mean i kind of just think there's absolutely no way people could behave like that now because everyone would find out about it,
2: don't you think? And, you know, the South Kensington uh, uh, townhouse, I mean, it must have been a beautiful place. Yeah. Right across the tube uh, stop, and, and uh, it's probably some, you know, Russian lives there now. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the uh, uh, yeah, the behavior was unbelievable, but also the, the, the drug use was off the charts and the alcohol use was off the charts. They were shooting cocaine and heroin in massive amounts. They were guzzling tequila, which was kind of a new thing in England at that point. Uh, and they just went around blitz the whole time. Uh, that affects your judgment, your communication skills and everything. And plus, this is about the time where Jim's uh, uh, illness is really beginning to protrude into his brain. And the the mask of the genial, uh, kind, easygoing, smiling California guy. That was the mask that he wore, and that starts to slip during this time. Like you say, you know, uh, pissing off Clapton until he throws the books out. There's a a Christmas scene at Clapton's place where Clapton's bought Jim a a, a fancy antique drum, and and Jim goes, what's this then, you know? (laughs) So they're beginning to, to be unpleasant to each other. Uh, which, you know, there's partly the characters involved, partly the the drug and alcohol abuse. And then again, the incredible bubble of being one of the world's greatest rock stars in 1970. I mean, was there a more uh, elevated place in society at that point? I don't think so.
0: No, no, sure. No, that's true. But it's particularly—it's very—it's particularly interesting to read this book in the in in the current present time when everybody talks about mental health issues, you know, to to cover all kinds of things. Whereas Jim Gordon clearly had appalling mental health issues, undiagnosed at the time. Is that fair to say? They, they didn't even stand out. That's also sort of the uh, extraordinary
2: irony uh in the mad dogs and englishman tour uh jim had an episode where uh he clobbered his girlfriend Rita coolidge knocked her unconscious in the hallway and 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 made no bones about it just went back to the uh, hotel room he'd been in uh, as some kind of a rupture uh but it, it you know it was went by the crowd without any trouble because authentic insanity what couldn't be distinguished from what was going on anyway.
3: Yeah, they would have thought that was just kind of drugs and alcohol having an effect, presumably.
2: Or, you know, there was so much outlandish and outrageous uh, behavior going on, that just didn't strike anybody as that uh, 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 severe, that
0: extreme. Mm. (laughs) They literally couldn't distinguish authentic psychiatric uh, behavior. Did he manage to get it under control at any stage of his career?
2: So, yeah, a little bit. He could, he could hold it in. And, and, you know, this is the thing I think about a lot. I mean, first of all, he was vexed by the whole thing. He felt like he was an intelligent person who should be able to think his way out of this situation. And he couldn't. And I think he was ashamed And as a result, he wouldn't discuss this with anybody. He would see psychiatrists, but he wouldn't tell them the full extent of his affliction. He wouldn't tell them that he was hearing voices. Um, So all that was going on for him, and he was struggling to keep this face on so that he could continue to work and continue to function in real life, while inside it's just like roiling uh finally starts to sort of come out in the open in 73 74 with the souder hillman band, where jim's behavior is just just impossible and 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 also for the first time it's affecting his performance he's not On time for concerts, he's dragging time. And when he does play, it's like, what's this? And they fired him.
3: So the time when he's joining Frank Zappa and he's joining, um, you know, uh, Steely Dan and working with them, were they aware of the things that he'd
2: done in terms? No, nobody knew that Jim was sick. No, nobody ever knew that Jim was sick. He 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 kept that hidden completely. There are very few people he ever admitted it to. And only that that only starts happening like after he's been in mental hospitals. Uh, You know, he he got into a thing with Dean Parks at a a session once. Stop that. I know what you're doing. What? You're making my hands uh, uh, go back and and, and you're making me miss the uh, first beat on every bar. And, and Dean Parks is playing guitar in the session. He's he doesn't even know what Jim's talking about, and everybody in the room is going, "What is he talking about?" Uh, so they they go ahead and and, and Johnny Rivers it was a Johnny Rivers session says says Jim he can't do that from over there. Now let's just count it off and go. And, okay, you know one two, and <laughs> but Dean had no idea what that was about. It was year years later that Jim says to Dean, you know, I have mental issues and I've actually been committed to mental hospitals about this. And, and that's like, Oh, Oh, so that explains that. So there were a bunch of like mysterious episodes at the very end. He was playing with a, a, a kind of blues band called the, the blue monkeys. And, um, uh, none of those guys knew that jim had any problems uh they were all having dinner one night and and jim ordered a steak and he carves up the steak and 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 takes a bite and holds the the bite in front of his face and just the fork wavers and what's going on is inside his head the the voices are commanding him not to eat And he just throws the fork down and goes, I got to go. Tosses a $20 bill on the table and leaves. And the guys left behind, they have no idea what's just happened. They can't Mm. figure it out. It's just totally mysterious. Why would he do that, right? And none of them knew anything about this until Jim was arrested. Mm. So all that stuff about the voices in his head you got from the medical records, presumably. There's a lot of uh, of Jim talking about it. Uh, there's a lot of lawyers talking about it. Uh, the, the the yeah. I no, I I spoke to one of his psychiatrists at great length. Uh, uh, yeah. There's a uh, uh, it's it's amazing. Uh, the the guy was tortured, just tortured in pain, and and we can't even really imagine the depth of it, but. The deal is, and it's well known in the psychiatric world, uh, it, it, it's, it's called the, they call it the electric hat band. So these voices will command you to do something. And if you fail to do it, they give you a headache that is so severe, you can end up crawling on the floor, wetting your pants, unable to think of anything else but this white, hot, cruelty pain is what Jim called it. So the voices start, like, commanding you, you know, don't eat that, don't take that gig, don't do this, don't do that. And the only really effective weapons Jim had against the voices were drugs and alcohol. And it got worse and worse and worse. By 1975, the voices were just prevalent in his life. By 1978, he's through with professional music. There's an episode where the voices make him turn down a Dylan tour and he goes to Vegas to play with Paul Anka and he sets up at the sound check and plays one note and the voices tell him he's dead if he plays a second one. He looks at the musical director and says, I have psychological problems. I can't do this gig. And he went home and he was through No more sessions, no more nothing. Uh, This was the in and out of mental hospitals drug treatment programs uh and finally the voices start in on his gold records the only thing left is he's got his gold records really neatly hung in a study in his in his two-bedroom uh, condo in north hollywood uh and the voices want him to throw him away and uh, you know he struggles with that they fight back All right, he gives in, he takes the gold records off the wall, out to the dumpster, goes back to his condo and guzzles vodka until he's so drunk that the voices have died down. And then he goes and gets his gold records and hangs them back up. This goes on every night, sometimes many times in a night. And then... The voices started on the drums. They wanted to throw away the drums. Now, the drums, boy, that one he didn't want to give in on. But they tortured him. And again, he starts taking the drums out to the dumpster. So every night he's taking his gold records out to the dumpster, his drums out to the dumpster, going back to his condo and getting as drunk as he can, and then bringing the drums in and the gold records in. This goes on every night it seems kind of months. unimaginable
3: uh, and actually until the night he said before
2: that, he kills his mother
3: really? it seems unimaginable that, that, that somebody hadn't kind of taken charge of him really and that he was just allowed to
2: rattle on like this on his own so uh, schizophrenics are not good at relationships of any sort and jim had retreated from all relationships I mean, I'm talking to people that were on hundreds of sessions with him. And I say, you know, what, did you ever have dinner with him? No. Did you know he was married? No. Did you know he had a daughter? No. Did you ever talk to him about anything besides the music in front of you? Can't remember it. Mm. So Jim retreated into a very solitary existence. And at the period of time we're talking about the end of, the, uh, of, of his um, career, you know, that when he's playing with the Blue Monkeys and and taking the gold Records down, I don't think he was answering his phone, I don't think he was seeing anybody Uh, I I think he just stayed in his condo and maybe went out to Chadney's to have a drink every so often Uh, he he was getting food delivered, maybe he'd go to the liquor store that he was not in good shape, he was overweight Uh, he was mentally ill and and severely so,
0: mm-hmm. and as you say, the the terrible climax of this is that he 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 killed his mother, and um, and obviously as a result of that, he spent the rest of his life in a secure facility. Is that is that the case? Half his life, like 30, yeah, 30, years, 30, thirty years, wasn't it? Yeah, 30, 39 years. Um, thirty nine yeah,
3: years, and but there was no option of parole at any stage. I don't think Jim wanted
2: out. Every time he came up from parole, uh, he would stop uh, taking his meds or stop doing his talk therapy or, you know, cause some issue that would uh, make them turn down parole. Uh, He was only sentenced to 16 years. He did 38. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that's that's kind of a volunteer thing. I mean, if you're sentenced to 16 uh, years, you can get out pretty soon soon after that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he died when? Two years ago or something like that? When he died in March of uh, 2023. I just right, finished. Oh, right. The right, book. right, right. So you're, you're already embarked on it when he was still alive at that point. Yeah, he wouldn't answer any of my letters. So, you know, as
2: like I say, uh, schizophrenics tend to be withdrawn. Uh, so he wasn't really interested in participating. I, I don't know uh, what his attitude was uh, when he was talking to uh, the gals uh, in 88, 89. You know, it's hard to say because the interview transcripts. I mean, he's doped up on uh, on tranquilizers and antipsychotics. He's got like issues, so it's 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 a little bit like a radio station that comes in and goes out, and comes in again. Uh, but you know, he seems to like prison. He 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 definitely likes the food, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's hard to feel uh, anything but sympathy for this guy if you read these interview transcripts. He, 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 his his life just washed up on the on on the rocks, and 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 there's nothing he cares to do about it. Right, right.
0: Well, it's an extraordinary story, and as as I said earlier, Mark and I have been waiting for somebody to write it we for have. ages. It's terrific. It's like where, 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 Very where, sad. The last two that. thirds, last
3: third rather, quite hard to read. Some bit. I mean, it's yeah. just.
2: Ah, uh, you're so right, Mark. You know, uh, when I had to go approach revisers, you know, uh, I'd get to that second half of the book. And and my stomach acid would start to come out. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and I've written this thing, but yeah. it's just there's just so much pain and agony in that second half. And of course, as a reader, you know what the inevitable outcome of this it is. It is that's
3: true. But then again, it's balanced by the fantastic success and the amazing insights that you have uh, in the first half, and and, his, uh, and and the things he achieved in his life, which are absolutely incredible. It's a very very
2: good book. This podcast was brought to you by the Word.
3: Acast anbefaler.
1: Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi er skidetræt alle alle de der podcasts og forklarer, mig meget er der Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og løt til dopaminklubben. Hver uge ud kommer vi. Der laver vi sjovt spas med at have den her vid underligt dopamin